MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, December 13th, 2021. Today, Jason Miller is cooperating with the January 6th committee. California Governor Gavin Newsom calls for a law allowing citizens to sue for assault weapons and ghost gun parts. A Kanye West publicist joins the coup. Uh, We have confirmation that the PowerPoint we all saw last week giving a roadmap to the coup is the same one in substance that Mark Meadows gave to the January 6th committee. Traffic lawyer Jenna Ellis is now responsible for two coup memos, and I get to keep my paycheck and a bet I made about a federal judge deciding whether Bannon could try his contempt case in the media. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hey, Dana, how was your weekend? Uh, it was good. There's so, so many things that you just said in the opening I'm so curious about. There's a lot. And right now, like as we're talking, uh, we just got a 51-page document from the January 6th committee, the J6 committee, about Mark Meadows and all the shit that he's supposed to testify about and refused. And then, of course, probably about 10 pages of of a, a description of all the things they tried to do to give him, you know, uh, a chance, like Ample chance opportunity. Chance. Absolutely. And that spells out, as I've said, this incredible due diligence for when the Department of Justice gets this criminal referral, they'll look at it and say, well, we can't say that they didn't take, make every single effort, good faith effort to get Meadows uh, to come in and testify, to give him every single chance, because that they could lose that on appeal. It's if you if you don't try very hard to get somebody's testimony, it's hard to indict them because in order to indict somebody per the federal criminal procedure, uh, rules of procedure, you have to be able to not just obtain a conviction, but maintain one on appeal. And if you didn't try real hard, you know, to, to give him every chance to comply, he could appeal saying, hey, nobody told me. I didn't know. Uh, he's so. also got to be in some sort of trouble when he started to comply. And then all of a sudden was like, nah, I'm done. So it's not yeah. like he's like completely refused. <laughs> it just didn't like when things got hot. I'm 100 uh, percent convinced that. He was complying. He was getting ready to talk. He'd written his book. And I think he got a call from Donald at Mar-a-Lago who, who said, hey, hello, remember me? I'm going to give you a new lawyer. You can have Terwilliger. Get rid of your lawyer. And by the way, I need you to go on Fox and tell everyone your book is fake news. And then I need you to stop f- cooperating with the January 6th committee. Otherwise, you know, I don't know what he's got on him, but I bet it has something to do with that RNC hack in 2016, of which Meadows was a target. Uh, oh, and we, I wouldn't be surprised. We only got the DNC stuff that was that was publicly weaponized uh, through that WikiLeaks um, through WikiLeaks, but but we never heard anything about all the RNC stuff we got, and I think it's been I think it's being wielded. Um, oh, I think it's got to be, and you go. Oh, I'd love to see that because you know there's a lot of Trumpers, a lot of Trumpers in the, in the Republican Party that probably are in. Uh, a lo- lots of blackmail opportunities, mm-hmm. lots of blackmail opportunities. Yeah. And I have no, I'm, I'm, that's just my guess. Um, I don't, we don't have any corroborated reporting that Trump called Meadows and, and scared him. We don't know that he's holding anything over any of anybody's head. Nunez is quitting. I mean, everybody's quitting. Like, I don't, 
I got to get the fuck out of here, you know. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, later on in the show. I'm going to be talking to Hugo Lowell. He's a congressional reporter for The Guardian. Absolutely incredible stories that he's dropping. Uh, he's the one who got the exclusive scoop that Trump had actually called his top lieutenants at the Willard Hotel, the, com- the war room, the command center uh, on January 5th, the night before the attack on the Capitol. And then he was able to get uh, corroboration that that coup memo, that 36-page coup memo we all saw that came out a couple of days ago, the, the PowerPoint presentation, um, he was able to to find out uh, and get get confirmation that that is, in substance, the same PowerPoint that ended up in Mark Meadows' inbox that he gave to the January 6th committee. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about that, a little bit about Jenna Ellis, who is now, uh, they found another memo has surfaced that she sent out. She is complaining that Politico is, uh, you know, uh, I guess, treading on her executive privilege. Um, (laughs) People just like throwing this shit around, don't they? But she actually talked about this on some right wing show called The Water Cooler with some fucking person. And so she, maybe she should stick to traffic court if she doesn't know that when you talk about shit publicly, it waves your privilege. Um, but Hugo is going to come on. We're going to have a great chat with him. But we do have quite a bit of other news to get to, Dana. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. The congressional panel investigating January 6th postponed a deposition by Jason Miller longtime Trump advisor, uh, deadbeat dad, after he began engaging with the committee. That's according to House aides on Thursday. The House committee had been scheduled to depose Miller on Friday. It was unclear when a new deposition might take place. Miller did not immediately respond for comment. ABC News reported the postponement. The committee subpoenaed Miller and several other top Trump aides last month, claiming they set up a war room as a command center in Washington to brainstorm efforts to halt the counting of electoral votes days before the January 6th assault on the Capitol. According to the committee, Miller coordinated with Trump and Rudy to discuss strategies to overturn the election results and pressure Vice President Mike Pence not to certify the electoral counts in Congress. The committee also alleged that Trump's re-election campaign urged state and GOP officials to press state election officials to delay or deny certification of electoral votes. Uh, The committee has taken a tough stance on those who have defied its subpoenas. The panel recently said it plans to move forward again with contempt proceedings against Mark Meadows, um, who who is now, I guess, suing the committee. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, we know, faces two counts of criminal contempt of Congress after the House referred him for not showing up to the committee. His trial is set for July. So that's rolling along. We're rolling along. Oh, Yes. Yes. And what? I, you were about to do that. I know you were about to do rolling, rolling. Um, <laughs> I, we have a, I forgot to tell you, we have a little bit of a scoop and exclusive with Hugo later about what Ooh. those public, what the public hearings are going to look like in, in January. Awesome. I cannot wait to hear about that. And I am so happy to deliver this news as a Californian. I'm very proud of our governor. Newsom said that he is outraged by the Supreme Court decision that allowed Texas to maintain its ban on most abortions once a heartbeat is detected. Now, not as he just outraged, he's actually fucking doing something about it. So he vowed to use it as a model to pass legislation that would give private citizens the authority to enforce a ban on the manufacture and sale of assault weapons in California. This is what I'm talking about. (laughs) New York needs to come on board quickly. This is exactly how we need to fight back. 
Say you want to fuck with us? Let's go. This is a quote. SCOTUS is letting private citizens in Texas sue to stop abortion? That's what Newsom tweeted. He continued to say, if that's the precedent, well, let's let Californians sue those who put ghost guns and assault weapons on our streets. If Texas can ban abortion and endangered lives, California can ban deadly weapons of war and save lives. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. Newsom has been highly critical of the Texas law, but now it appears he's taken a basically like if you can't beat them, well, join them mentality. Now, as far as Newsom sees it, by refusing to strike down the Texas law, the Supreme Court has outlined the way legislation can be written to protect it from federal court review, which is a huge domino thing here. And this is a quote. If states can now shield their laws from review by the federal courts that compare assault weapons to Swiss army knives, which actually (laughs) happened in California, if you remember then California will use that authority to protect people's lives, where Texas used it to put women in harm's way. Now, that's from a statement published by Newsom over the weekend. So the reference to Swiss Army knives related to the way a federal judge in June, this was a quick case in June, a federal judge actually struck down California's three three decade old ban on assault weapons by comparing the guns to pocket knives. Not kidding. Mm -hmm. Now, legal experts had predicted something like this would be coming after the Supreme Court's decision to let the Texas abortion ban stand. It's precisely why some gun rights groups had opposed the Texas abortion law because they knew they saw this coming. Even just even Chief Justice Roberts, he had warned it would create a model that others could apply to different issues. So Newsom, he is choosing to pick up the baton at a time when he has been trying to increase his national profile after, you know, beating back a Republican led recall effort. And thank God he did. But none of this is likely to become a reality anytime soon. Let's be honest. But there's 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 power in this. Any any new gun control law would first have to pass the state legislature that usually takes around eight months to get new bills even approved, AG. But this putting this out there, it does show if you're going to fuck with us, we can fuck with you. Yeah. Fafo, right? Fuck around, find out. Yeah. Uh, I like it. I, lo- I, I When I saw that this weekend, I was like, yes, that's what you're right. We have to do this. We have to do this in every state where we can get it done. Um, where we have super majorities in, in the Congress. Absolutely. Uh, and remember how Steve Bannon wanted to make all of the discovery public in his criminal contempt trial? Oh, yes, I do. And the DOJ submitted a response saying sensitive materials have to be kept under seal because that's the fucking law. And because Bannon, they didn't want him to be able to try his case in the media, which would give him an advantage at trial. And uh, I bet my paycheck that the judge would tell Bannon to go fuck himself, even though he's a Trump appointee. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I get to keep my paycheck. Fantastic. <laughs> Federal Judge Friday. Nichols is his name. Rejected Bannon's challenge to the limits of the Justice Department was seeking on public disclosure of evidence um, that the government turned over to him in his case. Several media organizations also challenged the Justice Department's limits. U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols, who's presiding over the criminal contempt proceedings uh, that the DOJ brought, against Bannon, issued a protective order that uh, on Friday that largely adopted the government's proposal for restricting the types of evidence from the case that could be shared publicly. A source close to Bannon noted the judge's ruling includes some provisions Bannon's team had requested, like, we kind of won, but not really because the government wasn't asking for that shit, so shut up. The government will allow the parties to cite evidence in court filings, thereby making it public. The Justice Department had proposed a similar provision. In its earlier court filings, uh, the judge will also allow Bannon's team to challenge specific documents that fall under the protective order if Bannon's team believes they should be made public. But he can't just make them public. Bannon, who has pleaded not guilty 
to the contempt of Congress charge brought by the department set to go to trial July 18th. Bannon's team and the government were at odds over whether there should be a protective order over materials that would emerge in the discovery process. Bannon's team argued the public had a right to know about the details in the case. The government said the records should remain private because they always are. And that's the law. And shut up. And they were claiming that (laughs) Bannon was aiming to try this case in the media rather than court and arguing that making documents public before trial could sway witness testimony. They said it was tantamount to witness tampering, as a matter of fact. Nichols ordered Friday that records unearthed in the discovery process remain under protective order. The order does not apply to documents that are publicly available or records that Bannon's team obtains independently of the discovery process, which was outlined in the Department of Justice's filing. They didn't want that shit to be private anyway. CNN was among several media organizations that joined in challenging the proposed protective order, because what a bunch of dicks. Seriously. Well, I'm telling you, I thought one of the Trumpers over a high position at CNN. It's been squirrely ever since. Okay. Now, just when you thought the news couldn't get weirder, AG, here we go. Ready? Okay. So weeks after the 2020 election, a Chicago publicist for no one other than Kanye West traveled to the suburban home of Ruby Freeman. I don't know if that name sounds familiar. A frightened Georgia election worker who was facing deaths. We covered this story about a week ago, uh, facing death threats after being falsely accused by the former guy of manipulating the votes. Well, this publicist knocked on the door and offered to help. Okay, so let's start there. Now, the visitor, Trevian Cootie, I'm assuming how that or Cuddy. I don't know. Yeah, who does? It's probably not important, but, you know, just for posterity, we'll try and say something correctly. Uh, We'll just say Trevian Cuddy gave her name. But didn't say she worked for Kanye West, a longtime billionaire friend, Donald. She said that she was sent by a, quote, high-profile individual whom she didn't identify to give Freeman an urgent message. Confess to Trump's voter fraud allegations or people would come to her home in 48 hours and she'd go to jail. So Cuddy knocked on Freeman's door on January 4th. Freeman called 911. So there was a knock on the door. Fuck you. I'm calling the police. By then, Freeman says she was wary of strangers. I don't blame her. She was getting death threats because of these false stories that were put out by that right wing website. Okay. Starting on December 3rd, Trump and his campaign repeatedly accused Freeman and her daughter, Wandria, they call her Shay, Shay Moss. So of illegally counting phony ballots. We just did this and counting phony ballots after pulling them from the mysterious suitcases. Remember while working on election day in Atlanta state farm arena. Now, in fact, the quote suitcases were standard ballot containers. That's what they came in. And the voters, I'm sorry, the votes were properly counted. This is what an investigation proved. Uh, They were properly counted. County and state officials quickly confirmed refuting any fraud claims. So, Trump and his allies, regardless, they continued to accuse Freeman and Moss of election rigging. The allegations inspired hundreds of threats and harassing messages against them and their family members. And this is a quote. I cannot say what specifically will take place. That was from Cuddy. Cuddy's heard telling Freeman this in a recording. I just know that it will disrupt your freedom, she said. Yeah. And the freedom of one or more of your family members. Your daughter. Yes went on to say you are a loose end for a party that needs to tidy up this was from cutty so Remember, this sounds like she's like hey if you don't renounce your mafia bullshit and say that that there was fraud and that you were part of it you are a loose end that needs tidying up and bad things will happen to you and we can provide you protection like 
Wow. It's very, very mafia. She then said that federal people, AG, were involved but didn't offer specifics on who. So according to Freeman. This is the best part. I know. Here we go. According to Freeman. Cuddy told her that she was going to put a man named Harrison Ford on speakerphone. I want to repeat that. Cuddy told Freeman that she was going to put a man named Harrison Ford on speakerphone. Freeman said the man on the phone wasn't the actor by the same name. Oh, okay. But yeah, that's by the too way. Bad. I, I did because I had a vision in my head of them like carrying the Ark of the Covenant and it had a bunch of ballots in it, you know? Yeah. So but Cuddy went on to say that the man that was supposedly Harrison Ford had authoritative powers to get you protection. Dun, dun, dun. Imagine mm-hmm. if someone told us in 2010, in 2010, that Donald Trump, Kanye West, and the My Pillow guy were going to plot a coup. I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah, you're just watching. You're sitting there watching a nice holiday movie, you know, Home Alone. And, you know, Donald Trump comes on the screen. And like your future self says, you know, hey, that guy and the my pillow guy and ye, Yeezy, they're all going to plan a coup. You, I would look right at you and go, get the fuck out of here. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Just when you thought it couldn't get weirder, it gets weirder. It's Weird News Monday, people. It is Weird News Monday. <laughs> yeah. And it's just going to keep building over the week. We're, we're going to be getting Friday news dumps on Monday and it's just going to get, it's going to get exponentially more i think right before the holiday break now next i'm going to be talking to congressional reporter for the guardian hugo lowell about his story connecting the powerpoint to meadows the coup powerpoint uh and apparently uh some guy named waldron who and some other people of a from some company where he works on the board and this company's website says we're all about providing the ultimate in the highest technology to govern to the government and i'm like <laughs> what with the with the uh incredible advancements that we've made in like PowerPoint technology. That's, that's where you're at. They must've, they probably even faxed it and I don't even know, but uh, anyway, um, very serious stuff and I hate to make light of it, but um, Hugo's got some incredible story and a scoop for us about what those January hearings are going to look like. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's AG for The Beans. Think about how many hours we spend inactive just sitting at our desk staring at screens or on the couch staring at screens, staring at screens. But what if you could turn those otherwise inactive times into opportunities to burn calories and keep your joints moving? That's exactly what I'm doing thanks to my new QB. That's C-U-B-I-I. It's a compact elliptical unit that fits right under my desk or right in front of the couch so I can be pedaling while I'm sitting there looking at screens. In fact, I'm using it right now, and you can't even hear it because it's whisper quiet. It's really easy on your joints, and a recent clinical study shows that it burns 84% more energy than just sitting there. We'd all say I'd work out if I only had more time. Well, QB makes it easy to burn calories and stay active anytime and virtually anywhere. And QB is also perfect for anyone who might be housebound or otherwise needs something to help improve circulation and keep active. So if you have a parent or loved one who has limited mobility and needs a way to stay healthy, QB would be the perfect gift this holiday season. I love my QB, and I know you will too. And you could take advantage of QB's 30-day risk-free in-home trial. Turn your least active times into your most productive opportunities to stay healthy with QB. Visit QB.com slash beans to find the QB elliptical model that's right for you. That's QB, C-U-B-I-I dot com slash beans. 
And today's show is also brought to you by Calibrate. I have tried a lot of different weight loss fads in the past that didn't work. They're absolutely unreliable, and they don't count on the fact that your metabolism is your metabolism. But today, Calibrate is bringing this show to you. It's not a diet or a quick fix. It's a year-long commitment that gives you the tools to fight your biology. Traditional diets don't work because you can't fight biology with willpower, right? And Calibrate is different. It's comprehensive. It's doctor-guided. It's a metabolic reset that promotes sustainable results through lifestyle changes. Calibrate is a fully integrated program combining classes, one-on-one video coaching, and in-app tracking, and then community support for members like you, and medical care, including a video doctor visit. Calibrate works uh, great because they combine doctor-prescribed, FDA-approved medication paired with lifestyle changes to improve your health. Before Calibrate, this pairing was only available in clinical and academic settings, and you can easily fit Calibrate into your busy schedule. Your goals are personalized and tracked by doctors and coaches, and you can check in with the app as often or as little as you like if you're more hands-off. Your weight does not reflect your willpower, so get back in control with Calibrate. You get $50 off one year, their one-year metabolic reset, when you use promo code DAILYBEANS, all one word, at joincalibrate.com. That's $50 off when you use code DAILYBEANS at joincalibrate.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Today, we're joined by congressional reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell. Hugo, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Hey, I wanted to talk to you today because you uh, broke a story for The Guardian. I think it was Friday or Saturday about the Mark Meadows 36, 38-page coup memo that ended up in his inbox. And uh, I wanted to ask you, because there, we, we had it publicly and we weren't sure if that was the one that Meadows had handed over to the committee. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what your story shed some light on. Yeah. So late on Friday, we finally went with the story. Um, we basically reported that the 30, we, re- we reviewed a 36-page version of the PowerPoint. The one we reviewed had January 5 metadata. It was cast as a version uh, for dissemination to the public. Um, but crucially, as we understand it, the recommendations between the 36-page one that we reviewed and the 38-page one that Meadows turned over to the committee are the same recommendations. And the recommendations are key because that was where it said Trump should declare a national security emergency to return himself to office. And can you talk a little bit about who, I guess, who sent this memo? I think I read a Washington Post report over the weekend that it was a a person named Waldron, who was a former PSYOP army guy that uh, worked closely with that shadow legal team that was put together, um, you know, with the Eastman and Clark, Ellis, etc. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... It sounds like uh, from our reporting and, and as, as well as from the Post and, and others that this guy, Colonel, or retired Colonel Phil Waldron, was uh, one of the lead people in putting the presentation together. It sounds like he had help uh, from a number of different people um, uh, on the far right and, and kind of allies of, of, of Trump. And um, crucially, it sounds like, though, that he did this with the support and potentially the direction of Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor who was fired in 2017 for lying to the FBI and for lying to Pence. Um, so it all comes full circle in that sense. Um, it's not clear that Waldron sent the PowerPoint to Meadows. In fact, we don't actually know who sent the PowerPoint to Meadows. The only thing that 
we said in our report, uh, and we confirmed with a source close to the select committee was that Meadows received it in an email and he turned over both the email and the presentation itself to the select committee. Uh, and we have kind of reporting from inside the select committee confirming that. I think there was some suggestion that it, because that, that he might not have turned the actual presentation over to the committee because uh, the letter sent by the chairman of the select committee, Benny Thompson, to George Terverliger, Meadows' attorney, referenced an email um, that referred to the presentation, but I'm told that the committee has the actual presentation, and that was how uh, we were able to confirm that the recommendations uh, were the same across both versions. Um, but it sounds like it was a kind of a Flynn operation and allies with Flynn uh, who, who put this all together. Yeah, I mean, Flynn has been publicly saying uh, and uh, before and after that that that's sort of what the plan was, was to, you know, either declare a national emergency or martial law or something. And in that PowerPoint, it says so that they can deploy the National Guard to all 50 states to seize paper ballots and discount anything that's not a paper ballot and, and recount the whole election, etc. So, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty out there, but we've heard a lot of different versions of this plan before. And uh, I was also wondering if you had found out if Meadows sent that memo, that PowerPoint to anyone. Yeah, so it's not clear, right? I mean, Meadows' attorney came out pretty early on and said, look, the reason why this presentation is no big deal is because Meadows didn't do anything with the PowerPoint. He didn't engage with it. Um, and that was what the attorney said. And I just thought it was interesting that everyone was like, oh, well, if Meadows' attorney says that's the case, well, then that must definitely be the case. And of course, on Saturday, thanks to my brilliant colleagues at The Post, it emerges that that was not the extent of Meadows' engagement with PowerPoint. In fact, he met with Waldron personally eight to 10 times. And so the picture that was painted by Terveliger, the, the, the lawyer, uh, saying you know his involvement ended with him receiving uh, the PowerPoint in his inbox doesn't quite ring true. And if anything, Waldron was at the White House. And remember, Flynn was also at the White House. And we you know we have a source confirming that Flynn directly suggested to Trump at the White House at one stage that he should declare martial law, and did that on more than one occasion. So I think the wider picture that's becoming clear is that both Trump and his aides actively seem to be toying with this idea of staging a coup and what's starting to emerge is evidence of a mindset that welcomed planning for a coup essentially right we know they wanted pence to throw the election we know they wanted pence to either delay the certification or throw the election to the house or reject certain states of electors but if that failed it sounds like they were prepared to consider any way that Trump could be returned to office. And we reported last week that Trump, you know, at one point in the late evening of January 5, called up his lawyers at the Willard and said, you have to find ways to stop Biden's certification from taking place tomorrow at any cost. So I think you know, while all of this is not unlawful, it's extremely untoward. It would be unimaginable for any other presidency and is a real danger to democracy. Yeah, agreed. And I just have a couple more questions for you about uh, potential briefings of members of Congress. I do have to take a quick break, though. Will you stay with me? Yes, absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. 
Hey everybody, it's AG, and this portion of the show is brought to you by my new favorite thing, Scribd. Sometimes it takes me forever to find the new book or new podcast that I want to hear or listen to or read. With endless amounts of content, almost like infinite amounts of content, I usually spend as much time looking for my next book as I actually read do reading it. But not anymore, thanks to Scribd. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more, along with thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've read. That makes choosing your next book that much easier. Uh, and it's for one low monthly subscription. It's the ultimate reading subscription service. It lets you explore all your interests in any format you choose for just $9.99 a month. That's lower than the cost of a single book. I love using their service. I get to discover must-read new work from celebrated authors premiering exclusively on Scribd like Roxanne Gay. And when you want to change things up, I'm free to switch titles, genres, and formats anytime on my phone, tablet, or computer. Right now, we're offering listeners of this program a free 60-day trial by going to try.scribd.com slash ag that's try.scribd s-c-r-i-b-d dot com slash ag to get 60 days of scribd for free and today's show is also brought to you by upstart if you're carrying a credit balance month after month it can feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt with no end in sight you just make those minimum payments and nothing changes because the interest rate is so high you can spend half your adult life paying off your debt but Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. You can pay off your existing debt quickly and easily and start living your life. And it's easy to pay off your debt with an online personal loan with Upstart. Over a million people are already using Upstart to consolidate their high interest debt and pay off credit cards and even fund personal expenses because you get one fixed low monthly payment. Because Upstart looks beyond just your credit score. They find you a better loan rate with their trusted partners by looking at other stuff like your income and your history and your employment and your work history and your credit history. And you can check your rate soft pull. You will not impact your credit score for free. And in minutes, you can check your rate to see if you can get a lower rate. And that's for loans between one to $50,000. And you can even receive funds as fast as one business day after the acceptance of your loan. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash dailybeans. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. And please use our URL to let them know we sent you. Your loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. That's upstart.com slash dailybeans. Everyone, welcome back. We are talking with congressional reporter for The Guardian, Hugo Lowell. And uh, Hugo, before the break, you had mentioned your, I mean, you had a very, very powerful, powerful story last week about Trump phone calls to the Willard Hotel. And I think if I remember correctly, I, I could be wrong on this, but I think Waldron told the Washington Post that he was there or in communication with them. And that he had also, aside from meeting with Meadows eight to 10 times, had met with Trump and had also briefed members of Congress, including Lindsey Graham. Do, uh, can you talk about, uh, do we know who those members of Congress are outside of, of Lindsey? So we have some idea, but uh, I didn't want to say any more than what I reported uh, in the newspaper on Friday. And that was basically that both senators and members of Congress were briefed on the presentation. And I put it like that because, A, we weren't 100% sure as to which members it was. We didn't want to just name some and not others. We wanted to you know, provide a full picture if we could. Um, and also because it wasn't entirely clear how these briefings uh, took place. And I think this is what we're all going to have to establish when Congress comes you know, back on Monday afternoon. And um, I think the crux of this is, regardless of whether it was Waldron or his, his associates, or if it was Meadows, the fact that members of Congress were briefed on a, a presentation like this 
and we are only now just hearing about it, right? We are in December. We're almost a year to January 6th. And I mean, we, we, well, we reported that the briefing took, took place on January 4th, but almost to a year. They never said a word that they were briefed on ways the Trump administration could stage a coup. And that is just incredible to me. And of course, the only other thing I want to say about this is Meadows knew of the PowerPoint. It seems ridiculous to me that he, that he wouldn't know if members of Congress were being briefed on the same contents or the same presentation that he also saw. Yeah, and we also learned, speaking of the, the coup lawyers, that secondary legal team that was sort of uh, put together, maybe by McEntee, we don't know. I, I, I'm assuming we'll learn more details about that. Uh, but speaking of them, Jenna Ellis, there, uh, there's now reporting that there was a second memo she sent out uh, outlining key details about how to get Pence to just ignore, not open not even open the the electoral the electors from from specific states and then of course she went on twitter to say hey that's attorney client privilege politico i can't believe you published that but then she blabbed about it on some right wing radio network kind of negating the uh, whole idea of privilege so it it seems like there was a whole team of lawyers working with the white house uh you know and we don't we're still looking for that particular connective tissue um about about who you know what what did the president know and when did he know it basically but that they were all sort of uh, putting these these memos out Jenna had a couple Eastman with his six point memo uh, the the you know the coup the the PowerPoint the, <laughs> the coup PowerPoint there seemed like there was a lot of this going around yeah and and I think and you know maybe maybe there's not the way, right right way to look at it but I don't give too much credence to or too much kind of weight. To the memos that were flying around pre-January three four, um, basically because around that time, you know, Trump was really just grasping for any sort of way to return himself to office, and you know, he was prepared to host people like Flynn and Sidney Powell in the Oval, uh, so long as they gave him, you know, however ludicrous, some sort of ideas or ways to return himself to the presidency. Uh, and so, like the way I like to think about this, and I've been covering this for months and months and months now is there was a time late December through the very, very start of January, January 1st, January 2nd, where Trump was searching for ways, uh, you know, he was brainstorming ideas, right? Brain mapping ideas. And then around January 3, January 4, he starts to start getting really serious about this. This is when he had Eastman in uh, the Oval Office and he met with uh, Pence and Pence's chief of staff uh, and Pence's lawyers uh, and they were discussing, you know, ways that Pence could um, overturn the election. And it sounds like to me that they were really focused on finding a quote unquote above board way of preventing Biden from becoming president. And this was for Pence to, you know, abuse his ceremonial role. So when I look at all these memos, the way I think about them is. How close were they to January 6th? The closer they are to January 6th, the more weight I ascribe to them, right? And the reason why I take this PowerPoint so seriously is that it's dated January 5, and these briefings are happening January 4. So it's all around the same time. And you have, and as you said, there are different classes of lawyers. There are the lawyers in the White House, like the White House counsel. There are lawyers at the Willard Hotel. 
that that was like you know Giuliani, people like John Eastman, people like Boris Epstein, and then you also have the the really crazy lawyers and these are like Sidney Powell um, that were being directed at the likes of uh, Mike Lindell and Mike Flynn. Yeah, and also on January 4, we have uh, Secretary of Defense Christopher Miller issuing that memo that, uh, you know, we can't arm people. We don't want to respond to whatever happens at the Capitol in right, two days. Right. Completely forgot about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, huh. And and, and I find it really interesting that I think uh, Jamie Raskin was stopped in, in one of the hallways in, in Congress on Friday and asked by a reporter, um, you know, what, what's the committee doing? What's the committee up to? And I, I believe he, he actually said something about putting together a fine grained f- picture, um, using evidence of one of the things that he, that they that he seems to, um, say that they have evidence for is the interaction between the violent coup and the pressure on Pence to overturn the electors and throw the election to the house or whatever. And that those are somehow, Connected. I mean, unless he was just sort of unless he sort of misspoke or was just sort of saying, you know, um, that there, you know, the interaction between those two things is something that we're looking at. But I, I find that given the, the Chris Miller memo, this memo, all of the other stuff that you say are, it runs closer to January 6th itself, all, all very interesting. And I, I'm I'm looking forward to these public hearings early next year so we can find out what it is they have. Yeah, and I think what Raskin says is really interesting. I think you're right to point it out. Uh, and, you know, real creds for spotting this, actually, because I only saw it after you pointed it out on Twitter, and this is why I brought you follow you on Twitter. Um, but <laughs> yeah, thanks. The, it's, well, no, seriously, it's true. But Raskin saying something like that is interesting because, you know, he is on the select committee. He's one of the more engaged members on the select committee. You know, and, and he's really, you know, as a law professor himself, he really does see uh, things in a very specific way. And it all comes back to what I was trying to convey earlier about how they had this above board, this, you know, this seemingly above board plan of pressuring Pence to throw the election. And this was their big, you know, public facing thing. But it sounds like based on the PowerPoint, based on Trump's call to Willard, they were also preparing or at least considering a plan B. You know, you want to stop Biden's certification from taking place. You know, Trump told the lawyers at the Willard, the, the PowerPoint said, you know, declare a national security emergency so that we can just uh, invoke some sort of insurrection act or martial law in order to prevent um, Biden's certification from going ahead. It was in private, this attempt to ensure that Trump could somehow be returned to the presidency that I think is the most alarming. And I think Raskin may be hinting what the select committee might have in that area. Yeah, I definitely look forward to uh, learning more. I do understand that they have to conduct all of these depositions behind closed doors. There are over 300 witnesses now, uh, but we will be getting those public hearings after they put the entire case together sometime early next year. I don't think they've set a date, right? Yeah, and uh, a little bit of a scoop uh, for your listeners. Uh, I spoke to several members on the select committee uh, last week. And what it sounds like they're going to do, that these hearings are going to be, uh, quote, non-traditional hearings. So it's not going to be like they're going to put in a witness and they depose them in, or, uh, in public and in view of the cameras. What it sounds like is that they're going to reveal what they have learned to date. The committee said they're not going to release an interim report, but it sounds like maybe they may be talking about what they have found, as if in an interim report, but in public and directly doing that um, 
in, in a way that can be carried on TV. That I think they're trying to spin a narrative and and create that and 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 put into people's minds the way the select committee thinks everything was unfolding from January four through to January six. Uh, interesting. So you're saying they're not going to have the witnesses they're deposing come and testify, or just select witnesses, or they didn't really go into details. My understanding is that there won't there won't be a witness hearing. My understanding is that they will reveal to the public what they have learned to date. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. I, I wonder if they're planning on doing that some point later. <laughs> um, huh, that's really interesting. Thanks for, for letting us know. Did you, have, did you hear about if they're going to have witnesses testify publicly? Potentially later in the year, but the way these, non, the way these hearings in January were described to me, it was... Uh, they were going to reveal to the public what they've already learned, which is a really interesting uh, way of doing things, I think. And um, the way Benny Thompson described it to me was, not, and I can't say too much, but it was it was alarming. Yeah, I hope they're prepared to explain why they aren't, if they don't put public witnesses out to testify, if they, uh, if they probably will want to explain why. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, a, look, there's an element here, right? They, they want to, they want to tell people what they have uncovered already because it sounds like what they've already uncovered is, is damning in itself. Like the only reason we know about the presentation is because they put it in a letter. Like no one knew that Meadows had this in his, in, in his inbox. Meadows turned over around 6,000 pieces of documentation to the select committee before he started cooperating. They actually have quite a lot of material now and they're trying to shift through it. They're looking at the metadata of all of this. It's a huge technical operation, I'm told, on the digital side. Um, so I think they do have a lot of material. They want to present it. What they don't want to do is put it in a big interim report that people have to shift, shift through to find details. They want to have hearings publicly streamed so that they can convey directly to the American people what they have uncovered. In January. Is what I was told. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. All right. Well, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe in the spring they'll do, I don't know. We'll see what happens, but I appreciate you being on top of it for us. Everybody check out. Uh, the Guardian, Hugo Lowell, follow him on Twitter. I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hello, everyone. It's AG for The Beans. Uh, if you've been listening for a while, you know I'm a little obsessed with a game called Best Fiends. It's my favorite mobile game and the perfect pick-me-up when I need a break from the holiday action. <laughs> Best Fiends is an entertaining and super fun distraction from the stress. I consider it part of my self-care routine. Best Fiends has it all, a captivating storyline, beautiful visuals, uh, collectible fiends, and tons of fun puzzles that keep my brain sharp. I cannot put it down. It is quite possibly the best puzzle game out there. And the best part is you don't need Wi-Fi to play. So if your travels for the holidays take you on planes that don't have Wi-Fi or out into rural areas, you can still play Best Fiends wherever and whenever you want with offline mode. So it's that, I think that that's pretty, pretty amazing. And it's my favorite mobile game because it's always interesting and challenging. I'm at level oh, almost 4,000 now. <laughs> uh, but Best Fiends has literally thousands of levels with more added all the time. So it's always fresh. You never run out. And um, I love having that fresh challenge waiting for me when I need to pick me up. So download Best Fiends for free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're blown on. Ah, Monday good news. 
we have two very long but awesome submissions today, Dana. We do. I can't wait to get to these. They're, they seem a bit intertwined. They do. And uh, if you have any good news you want to send, confessions, corrections, shit kids say, photos, holiday recipes, uh, whatever you want to send in, shit parents say, shit your grandparents say, that can always be fun. You can do that by going to uh, dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact and, uh, you know, give your name or anonymous, give your pronouns if you like, and we will read it on the air. Well, not on the air, but, you know, because we pre-record all this. But uh, why don't you kick us off today, Dana? I would love to. Um, we're going to get kicked off today with James, pronouns he and him. Thanks again for all the hard work you put into keeping us Canadians informed enough not to completely despair at the state of our southern neighbor. Uh, you're welcome, and I'm shocked that this is what it's like. You don't need more than this because, whoo, there's a lot going on. Uh, I have a couple of minor corrections for the Friday Good News segment. You mentioned that the, that the suggested swear, Jesus flipping tables Christ, made you think of Jesus flipping the table at the Last Supper, but the contributor did say it was meant to be biblically accurate. That means it must actually be referring to Jesus driving the money changers from the temple. Quote, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. End quote. And that's from Matthew twenty one twelve. Oh, all right. Cool. So he did actually flip some fucking tables. He flipped some tables. It was just he was more of like the gambler than the uh, dinner. <laughs> um, if you prefer the gospel of John, you could also use, quote, Jesus banker flogging Christ instead, which is John 2, 13, 16. Uh, that has a nice ring to it. Hmm. Yes. The second con correction is concerning the different colored eyes thing. The technical term is heterochromia. Heterochromia. Okay. Hetero for different. Chromia for color. But that's not what David Bowie had. Bowie had Anisocoria? Anisocoria. Yeah, Anisocoria, which differently sized, which is differently sized pupils. His left eye ended up permanently dilated after he got in a fight over a girl and his friend, oh my God, his friend George Underwood punched him in that eye. No hard feelings, though. Underwood ended up doing a lot of artwork for Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust. Interesting. Keep up the great work. I'm looking forward to the Daily Beans guiding me through the next several months of whatever ends up happening to you as democracy. Jesus Christ, James, we don't even know. The attached photos are uh, Christ driving the money changes from the temple painted by El Greco in 1568. And in parentheses, it says I have no idea why there are so many half naked women and fully naked babies among the money changers. Banking was apparently quite different then. I feel like I feel like Hannah Gadsby would have something to say about this painting. Uh, David Bowie. The next one's David Bowie showing his anisocoria. Uh, you can see that both his eyes have the same gray blue, but the left eye is almost fully dilated. And our mini Aussie denim showing our sectoral heterochromia. That's and denim does have two different color eyes. In uh, sectoral heterochromia, only part of the eye is a different color. Denim has one-fourth of one iris blue, and the rest of the iris, as well as all of the other one, is brown. James, that was so much information and incredibly smart. And oh my God, look at this picture of Bowie. There you have it. I, I mean, all of that was news to me anyway, because I had no idea about the different colored eyes or... I figured there was a contact 
you know, a contact lens in or something. Um, yeah, lots of naked women and babies and, uh, <laughs> denim. Yeah. That's a really cool shot of denim's eye. I have learned so much today. I have too. This has Amazing. been a very informational, good news segment. Let's keep it going. Quite. quite. Uh, and this um, submission is from Stace, pronouns she and her dear queens of the beans. I'm a longtime listener, Los Angeles native, heart full of wanderlust nomad, who's been living outside the United States for the last decade, currently writing to you from the Blue City in Chef Chowen, Morocco. Mm, Chef Chowen, right? Chef Chowen? And that sounds right. Morocco? Chef Chowen? Chef Chowen? Chef Chowen? Yeah, I, you know what? It's probably like Chowser prob- Town. <laughs> yeah, it's probably we, Chihuahua, yeah. Morocco. Wait, what? Yep. Yeah, the now, Chef Chowan's silent. <laughs> this submission will be too late to make your Thanksgiving episode, but as Dana said, words have energy, and I still want to give voice to some of what I'm thankful for receiving this last year. To begin with, I'm thankful that the felonious and fraudulent buffoon was voted out of office and that the January 6th insurrection failed, for the moment, anyway. I'm thankful for what the Biden administration has been able to do thus far with the American Rescue Plan, infrastructure, social spending bills, and I remain hopeful for voting rights legislation and the slow wheels of justice to continue to grind forward and hold all criminal despots accountable for their shit show craven corruption before it's too late. I'm also thankful for the happy arrival of my new niece, born November 23rd. Both baby girl and mama are doing well and recovering. There is still debate circling about what her name will be, but rumor is that my brother will bestow her with one of our mother's namesakes, honoring her memory in the best way I can imagine. Now we will have something new and wonderful to celebrate in the birth of this little girl and all the hopes, dreams, and possibilities she carries with her. Cool way to look at it. As winter arrives in my small mountain abode, I'm thankful for having a working hot shower. <laughs> Last year, I was boiling water for bucket baths, oh my which goodness. you can imagine how rarely that happened, as it was a dreadful affair to bathe in a bucket in 30 degree weather. But this year, I can be indulgent and have been enjoying the daily sweet luxury of taking hot showers. It's the little things. I'm thankful for my little uh, Baraka Baloo. A black skitty scat that showed up on my doorstep, starving and only weeks old, on the last day of Ramadan this year. Named after the lucky, carefree jungle book bear, he has grown up healthy and strong, aw, with a beautiful ebony coat that feels like silk. And even though he's reached his teenage phase where he's super demanding and does not want to be touched that much, he still gives me goof feline, good, sorry, good feline vibes. <laughs> and is curled up in my lap as I write this to you now. This little fatness, hashtag Mr. Second Breakfast, Mr. Snacks a lot, <laughs> hashtag give me food now, brings me daily joy, makes me laugh out loud, and reminds me how much I love having animal energy around. I also owe a huge debt of gratitude to Morocco, its people, its culture, and its uh, in- incredible landscapes, which have embraced me in a time of healing after my divorce and served to be fertile ground for new beginnings. I have found peace and joy here, and one of the many lessons learned uh, one that comes from uh, to the forefront right now is how people here live life through the eyes of abundance. They give and accept blessings all day long, giving voice to their gratitude in every interaction. It's built into their language, their religion, and their mindset, and therefore into their way of being with themselves and with each other. This attitude of abundance creates space for genuine generosity to occur. It is in how they welcome you into their homes and hearts and offer their trust so freely, taking true joy in sharing whatever they may have with you, even if it's just a smile. I have learned that when we see uh, our worlds through the eyes of abundance, it becomes easy to share and easy to give of yourself and easy to serve others. And I can't help but wonder what would happen if we would all just spend a little bit more time lifting each other up instead of dragging each other down. It's the difference between cooperating together and competing against each other. 
It's just a simple switch of perspective, a choice that is actually quite easy to make. And I'm grateful to have been able to live in a place where this perspective is put into practice every day. And speaking of new beginnings, I'm counting my blessings after almost two years in the making and with the undying support of my friends and family through sheer persistence, the labor of love and patience, I'm overjoyed to announce the official launch of my newest venture, This Modern Nomad, Everyday Travel Bags. And that's thismodernnomad.com. And Dana, they sent us some. I have one for you. She sent us. Oh my goodness. Wonderful. They're really, really amazingly crafted. They're beautiful. She says, I'm super proud of this accomplishment and forever grateful to all who have helped me along the way. I count you queens among them, which brings me to my last but not least. How thankful I am for you ladies and your work. I've been listening since the storied kitchen days and discovered your roundtable discussions amidst the devastation that was Trump. I was in desperate need to understand what the hell was happening within the Mueller investigation and was relieved and so grateful for your research, analysis, insights and your tenacity in pursuing the truth, keeping us all informed and engaged in the process. I'm amazed by your command of the information circling uh, and astounding ability to keep all the plates spinning of juggler, a juggler of names, timelines, players, the laws and all the moving parts. I have come to depend on my daily helping of beans to keep me sane, hopeful for justice and still laughing out loud at the absurdity and irony that we all find ourselves in these days. Going of Kanye. Uh, the com- <laughs> I added that. <laughs> the community that you've created has helped me not feel so isolated on the other side of the world. And even though I can't c- commune with the group, given I am generally eight hours ahead of you in Morocco, uh, I carry you in my heart and lift a glass regularly to the unstoppable force that you are. Bless the MSW network. I'm so thankful for your diligence and intelligence, your savvy side-eyed stance in this most important work. Keep fighting the good fight. May you help uh, deliver us all. For pod pet tax, I give you Baraka Baloo, pretending to be innocent. FYI, Baraka translates to luck or enough, depending on the context. If you think about it, (laughs) it's a lovely way to frame up gratitude. I have many happy places, but here's a new one of me perched over the blue city. Um, Marhaba to Chef Chowan anytime. Look at this kitten. I know. Oh. So amazing. Look at that. It's beautiful view. It really is. I would love to go one day. I mean, the colors, the colors, it looks the blue and white. I don't know. It just, it reminds me a little of Santorini, but the domes, you know what I mean? Like I, unless that's just some sort of lighting on the buildings, but no, it does remind me of, of, yeah, it totally does. And it's, it's, I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, and especially like at sunset right there, you know? Yeah. No, I've zoomed in. That, that definitely looks like the buildings are blue. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting, huh? Yeah. Beautiful. Well, There's thank so much you. to see in this world. Thank you for sending that in. And thanks to James for your, your post, too, and teaching us about Bowie eyes and yeah. heterochromia and all that, and flipping tables and stuff. That's a lot of knowledge today. A Some lot. Good shit. And, uh, and, you know, also to Stace, thank you so much for these bags. Uh, I'm going to look forward to to being able, when I see you next, Dana, to to give you yours. They're really, really wonderful. I can't wait. I'm stoked. And I love presents. <laughs> thank you very, very much. <laughs> and uh, what was the, let me shout out the website one more time. Thismoderndomad.com. So check them out. Really great. Um, all right. That's it. That's the show. Uh, you, do you have any uh, final thoughts today, Dana? I do. Just seeing this picture of Morocco, like, I know we're all vaccinated. So when you feel safe, go see somewhere in the world that you've never been. Like, if you can afford it, or even if it's somewhere in the United States, 
There are so many beautiful treasures, even in driving distance from where you live. Just do, do yourself a favor in the new year. Find one new, make a plan, and go have a new experience. This is a beautiful earth we live on. Go explore it. Mm, 100%. Great. Excellent final thought. And uh, we will all see you tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.